0: A poem should get up in the morning and go to work. It should be wide awake and ready to fuck or fight. A poem should pull out of sleepy neighborhoods with its horn blaring, flashing its brights into the quiet bedrooms throughout the suburbs. A poem should drive the speed limit in front of new drivers and go like hell when it's alone. A poem should be able to change its looks. It should be a little red jag when it's on the highway. It should be a big ass camouflaged Humvee when it's in the country. It should be an old rusted blue pickup with a rattling topper whenever car thieves are around. A poem should roll down the windows and let the wind scramble its hair. It should blow out the stink of stale winter air. A poem should have enough muscle to outrun the cops and enough finesse and flash to make the girls look twice If they have time, a poem should corner like a mountain goat. It should run like a cheetah and never, 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 ever have a flat tire. A poem should be able to go 50,000 miles between oil changes. A poem should come to a complete stop at all periods. And then, after looking around in all directions and checking the rearview mirror, streak like a comet down the straightaways of a long line that wraps around each end just because the paper isn't wide enough to accommodate all that distance between the space and the truth. A poem should carry as much weight as a drunk truck, as much fuel as a tanker, as much value as an armored car, as much class as a 32 Duesenberg with 16 cylinders and flip-up headlights, and as much chrome as, well, it should have a lot of goddamn chrome. And it should make as much noise and as smoke as a demolition derby. And when a poem comes home, it should sit in the driveway, outside of the garage, so all the neighbors can enjoy it too. And its engine should tick, tick, tick while it cools down and wait, not very patiently, for its next escape from inertia.
1: These fingers... These fingers lack the syllables to scrawl that childlike pulse into the blue and with every conscious breath I take, the color of your name runs numb as cocaine through my lips. I fear this awareness of you. A heartbeat that will soon have eyes piercing the imperfections on this beveled face. You will know the plastic bones that lay inside my frame, dormant, hiding from recollection. I don't think you would understand this boy playing in the world of men, walking in ambivalent circles, saturating smoky dirt into glass bowls, chanting as a lunatic, pleading with the shadows of night, repetitive lurching figures on a half-flaked gold wiry, white-cracked bedroom wall to keep to themselves. In these barren images of childhood, I trudge alone within the tremors of my sleep, searching for the strength to feel the textures of your angelic face that are walled out by scabs, entrenched on wounds, peering as eyes. And In the blindness of my fear, I cuddle for comfort the skin in which you have weaved your cocoon. Inhale breath. So you have not taken in unison with the faint palpitations of your life that ring out from beneath my palm. And I discover here in the subtle warmness of our embrace the courage to peel away the cataracts of my disease and see clearly for the first time the glory of my own mortality. So that I might stand before you no longer, that little boy carelessly whistling in the perils of the dark. For I understand life's worth lies not in its end, but the knowledge we shall all gain on the journey to it. So I'm going to open my ears to a swirling wind spreading the wisdom of a child across my face and I can hear the spirit of a little girl sing to me of self-belief that a hidden fault would only deepen. Through my imperfection she gains the ability to learn that somewhere in heaven she has carved out my name and chosen these frail shoulders upon which to stand. And my body trembles fingers once again perched on the syllables to scrawl that childlike pulse into the blue and I feel a tiny Calming, delicate hand, wrap around mind form to it like a glove, lifts this arm, carves her name, Olivia. Olivia. That's my child. Such an amazing, amazing strength.
2: Well, I'm, you know, whatever, but I literally wake up every morning enjoying this life, and that's something that I never, ever thought would happen. And because of that, it's an incredible it's an incredible world um, <laughs> yeah every morning I wake up feeling incredible and on every, any given morning I wake up to the telephone singing like a lake at the crest of of a wave, and that sound bounds outward and startles a bird resting at the window, and that bird is red like morning, it's tender, blood-colored and burning, and it takes off and flies southbound on the concrete river seeking food and nest fodder, and its wingtips brush the wind, and soon it is watching water dripping from a park bench being soaked by a sprinkler, and the sprinkler was turned on by a man as rickety as the walking stick that's resting at his side, it was a gift from his grandfather, carved with endless notches. And before the year is over, he will have given it to his son, who, ten miles away, is waiting for his daughter. She is playing a piano in a room full of gaping windows. She is thinking about Picasso, but all she can see are the keys. And outside, there is a garden. And the roses drink the music, next to a woman swaying graceful like a feather trapped inside the wind. And she picks only the tomatoes and she puts them in a basket and the basket it's almost full it was a present from her husband who's driving to the store to buy some pipe tobacco he's fumbling with the radio as he's tapping on the brakes and behind him there's a mailman who's worked for 30 years has never seen the ocean and will always pray for change and his girlfriend is waiting tables at some diner on some corner where she knows her customers names and soon her shift will be over so she can go home and fill the bathtub full of bubbling water and forget the morning strain. And walking home, she walks from street to street, passing all the houses but thinking only of her own. And as she looks up at the one she's passing, there is a phone ringing beyond the windows, and the person who is calling is resting from her work, and she is calling someone who loves her the way the desert loves the rain. And as I pick up that receiver... Hear her voice and speak softly to her. I know the miracle of the morning on any given day.
3: This one goes out to Carrie. Does she like me? 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 She's sitting right next to me. She's bitching about how boring everything is. I agree with her. Does she like me? She wants to know what I do for a living. Fuck. I'm unemployed. I tell her I'm in between jobs. Does she like me? I'm an actor slash poet slash comedian slash drunk slash asshole. I'm a living, breathing, stereotypical, big city, bohemian moron. Jesus Christ, I suck. But God damn it, does she like me? She tells me she's an actress slash waitress slash poet slash artist slash drunk. Praise Jesus. She's a stereotype too, but does she like me? She's like me Bitter, getting drunk on a Tuesday, bored with it fucking all. I think I like her. Got to go, she says. Got to get up early, she says.
4: Jesus fucking Christ, can I get your name? Can I
3: get your number? You want to go out sometime? Hey, let's get married. I'll have the children. Look, I'm already in the third trimester. I, 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 I love you, baby. I love you. See you around, she says. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) See you around. Hey, says the bartender. Who was that? She was a hottie. (sighs) I don't know, I say. I forgot to get her phone number. Or even ask her her name. And I'm pretty sure I'll never see her again in my life. But I think she liked me! Thank you.
5: A cop shot me in the head. No, I ain't lying. Shot me in the head. And you were crying. You told me that his gun was very small. A cop shot me in the head. A cop shot me in the head. In the place where everything's the same. like on tv the place where everything's the same how we laughed and did drugs with their kids head but I kept talking you were amazed that I kept talking you told me that his gun was very small a cop shot me in the head shot me in the head Shot me in the head man. A cap in the head.
6: I used to collect things that break. Miniature clowns with painted stone faces, mass of faux feathers, colored glass globes and antique vases, boxes for trinkets and music and jewelry, if it was small and fragile fascinated me. I've moved eight times in seven years, my life piling up like the trail of boxes I never unpack, the inevitable history of me waiting to be unwound from its binding and examined for cracks. The permanence of our accidents haunts us in scars. We can't escape who we are, what we've become after all the scrapes and the verges we repeatedly stretch to reach coming so close to the edge that the gravity of falling tugs at our bones, pulls us toward tragedy, the sudden crash late night that shatters sleep into warning, the reminder of how breakable things are, I've collected souls like figurines, the vulnerable, pulsing parts of people blistering beneath the skin, burning from the inside out. I've swept the ashen remains of those frail dreams into my palm, cradling pain that never belonged to me, shifting and stealing truth in an attempt to heal myself when I can't even look in the mirror. Without wincing at the reflection of another woman lost at the conception of self-respect, her image blurred into what's expected. The mother and housewife there to stay, no matter the cost to her graying mind. They never noticed her spirit fading away, spread too thin to cover the corners of their life plans, flattened like well-worn maps to happiness with every road bearing her name. But devotion is not the same as love. I've learned to ignore my artistic obsessions, lined shelves with my unconfessed passions, unpacked emotion like possessions, My porcelain skin strains like paper mache over a hollow frame. Fine blue-stemmed veins grown smooth and glassy. I feel those women inside of me. The thousand faces I've tried to be. Hand-painted features and ceramic smiles. A shape to suit all suitors. Displayed for the taking, my lifetime of faking. Waiting for the shove that breaks me while the collection of every role I've played, hovers on the stiff, cement cliff of the last mantle I plan to grace. I'm not hiding in hutches and trophy cases anymore. I won't be an ornament polished and placed to decorate someone else's desire. I've got fires of my own to feed. I need to reclaim the dreams I've tried to deny, decide that I deserve it all, and fly. Because the stars don't come to us. To stroke the sky, we must defy the fall.
7: Last month, we kept Jory Graham in the basement. Well, she really wasn't Jory Graham. I mean, her wig was rather obvious, and she wrote offensively bad poetry. That's why we put her in the basement she just so happened to like the attention and did not mind being referred to as our GIMP. I think she defined things she didn't understand by context. While the other children were being warned to not accept candy from strangers, we had a GIMP in the basement. (laughs) The month before Jory, we didn't have a GIMP. The basement was closed for renovations because we had received feedback from some of the gimps that our basement looked too much like the set of the Brady Bunch. The den, to be specific, only more humid. So we tore up the three-inch pile orange shag carpet, pulled down the nicotine stain drop ceiling, dismantled the vinyl upholstered bar, boxed up the Gordon's gin, the Relski's vodka, Daddy's 34 cases of old Milwaukee, and Mom's 10-year supply of Amaretto, Peach Snaps, and Boone's Farm. Mama loved that basement before Daddy brought home his first gimp. The funny thing was, he didn't look like a gimp. He looked like, like... Well, he looked like the postman. And the postman always had an odd expression on his face, you know, because he was always free and laughing and full of welcomes. And how about them tigers? But today, he looked down on the floor. And the way Daddy looked at us, we knew we weren't allowed to talk to him. We knew the postman was dirty. Growing up with a gimp in the basement was special. We used the phrases the other kids used, but (laughs) they meant different things. For instance, if my sister happened to mention that her monthly uh, visitor was here, it meant uh, we got a new gimp. (laughs) If daddy said, take out the trash, goddammit, it meant take the gimp for a walk. If mommy said she didn't feel in the mood, it meant meant she wore herself out the night before beating the gimp. We never got spankings. The gimp took them for us. He was like Jesus. (laughs) Looking back, I ponder fond feelings toward our dungeon of shame. Memorable gifts include the captain of the football team, my fourth grade Sunday school teacher, a cop that followed my mommy home one afternoon. <laughs> and a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> we gave him his magazines back when he left. Gips didn't work out, included my seventh grade PE teacher. She talked daddy into wearing the gimp mask, and, and we couldn't get her out of the basement for a week. <laughs> mommy didn't like the golf gimp. When he thanked Satan after each beating, she said, it just wasn't fun anymore. But I will remember Jorah Graham, even if she wasn't. She was kind and gentle. She pretended to not like the way Daddy called her an illiterate whore. She would read to us at night, when we would sneak down and feed her snacks. And she said, things can only get better.
8: Do you have regrets? Can you remember a single moment in your existence that forever defined you as you are today? An irrevocable action that haunts your nightmares, causing you to whisper over and over, If only I had, if only I had. Would you go back and make amends knowing your whole life would change? I do. And I would, if I could, go back to 13 in the corner behind that middle school and that pimply-faced, greasy-haired ninth grader holding a dangerously smoldering marble red, his harsh whisper, Hey, kid, you want to smoke? If I could go back to that one moment in time, I would not nervously shake my head and scamper off to Grandma's safe haven. Instead, I would stop, look him right in the eye, and say... Okay, I would take that cigarette in a nervously shaking hand and inhale just like my dad used to do before he quit. But I didn't. Instead, I ran away and forever after became the nice safe kid, the one the girls brought home to talk to their parents while they slipped out the back to make out with some hair-slicked-back-trapper-riding dude named Spike or Slash. And ever since, I've wanted to be that guy. I even got my ear pierced and bought myself a Harley. But I've been laughed out of every biker bar from Detroit to San Antonio. And I know why. It's easy to see. The source of all my misery from getting picked last to play basketball to standing on the wall at the high school dance is I never learned to smoke. That's right. Smoking would have changed my life. And don't tell me about the Surgeon General's warnings or about some secret tobacco company conspiracy because I know what every teenager knows. Smoking is cool. (laughs) Smoking is cool like James Dean in a white t-shirt and leather jacket. Smoking is cool like the kids skipping class playing pinball across the street. Smoking is cool like my grandpa, three packs a day for 65 years, finally falling off his tractor in his cherry orchard smoking is cool and all the non-smoking ads have made smoking even more cool smokers on smoke breaks have formed secret societies i want to join (laughs) the mysteries of the earth are unveiled outside of office buildings and non-smoking cafes politicians are called down in very special ways If everyone started smoking, world peace would break out. The Russians would bump cigarettes from the Chinese. Saddam Hussein would ask Bush for a light. Smoking is cool. At 31, is it too late for me? I'm thinking seriously of stepping up to a -a pack-a-day habit by getting the patch. One, two, three. Smoking is cool, and I don't need Joe Kamler. You've come a long way, baby, to tell me. Smoking is cool. I can feel the cilia in the back of my neck dying right now. So say it with me. Smoking is cool.
2: My brother is here right now. He's sitting right back there. And uh, Matthew is a ball of light. He is a complete and total um, inspiration to me. And this is Matthew. Matthew. Your brother is retarded, and everybody knows it. Their weasel-cheeked faces seemed to come to a point every time I'd watch them speak, shooting insults into me like poison-tipped bullets aimed at leaving me broken. My brother wasn't born normal. His architecture, insufficient to sustain the taxation, weighed on the human brain. He entered elementary school when I was in fourth grade, and as soon as they knew he was a Trudel as well, I became a target taking daily dishes of, Hey, look, it's the stupid kid's brother, and hey, shouldn't you get a handicap sticker for him? I'd walk the hallways haunted by the idea that somewhere someone was taunting him and kept to myself to avoid insult, going home wishing he were normal. That was my mistake. Let me tell you a little bit about my brother. No, his brain does not flex at the fingers with the precision to pinch bits of real and write them into story. His memory doesn't make a steady connection of number sequence and dynamic tasks. His vocabulary cannot pull words from the sky and weave them into a golden fleece of language. He does not see the world as rows and columns or grids and maps. He is not doomed by our incessant need to be organized. When Matthew's brain moves, it bends at the elbow sweeps every bit of junk off the table of knowing and leaves you peaceful in his presence. His memory is like a frothy cauldron with constant bits of magic floating to the surface. Nothing is lost. He remembers everything he has ever seen and pulls it from that steamy pot only when he thinks it's necessary. His words will bring you into a glittering world of favorite movies, songs from soundtracks and toys to be pondered with an uncluttered curiosity. He tells me, to keep close to the things I love every time he gets misty-eyed telling me about his Terminator movies. In his world, there are no late-waking frustrations. He has no need for complexity. Where he comes from, people are judged by their being, not by these tragic skin sacks that keep us so busy, and Matthew spins He stands in the middle of the room and twirls himself for hours, laughing and screaming in his own private orbit of joy, dancing to the pure rhythm of life that pulses behind his ears. Nothing that he does is normal. And if I had the chance, I'd go back in time to my elementary school and I'd have a few things to say. Normal is looking at the clock every 15 minutes It's liking something because someone else does, worrying for the sake of worrying, denying joy for no good reason. When Matthew can see past stars, you will walk with blinders. When Matthew can feel the wave coming, you will be left to drown. My brother may be retarded, but you, my friend, are normal, and everybody knows it.
5: It's about an anima experience. And the resultant, life upon the water, and here's how it goes. (laughs) Gonna build me a boat, a boat that'll float, way out on the water, like it oughta, a mermaid that sings at the edge of the water and she tells me i oughta build a boat so i'll use whatever i got and what i get to keep my feet getting wet So I use whatever I got, and what I get to keep my feet
9: from getting wet.
5: Gonna build me a boat, a boat that'll float way out underwater.
9: Because
6: I want to be tough, like muscles. Abs, pecs, biceps, glutes, triceps, driven to the edge, pushed and pumped, stretched and stringy, never strong enough. Tight, throbbing, unnatural bulges in well-oiled, vein-popping poses. I want to flex when you bend me. I want to narrow like cement-chipped, bottle-tipped eyes, sliced to slits, the bloodshot shoot to kill. Don't come too close, won't back down, I don't care. Stare stifling the starlit stiffness of a deep-set alley, you don't dare stroll alone. I want to peel like calloused skin under your dirty nails, scab like raw wounds, wear barbed wire, fishhook, and skull tattoos, prison blue with scars stitched through the harsh designs. I want you to call me Roach because I'm gonna be scary like head shaved, cheeks three days scruff, earring, nose ring, lip ring, tongue ring, dick ring, cellophane packing, cigarette smoking, voice gone, gruff as rough leather with silver spiked shoulders and studded collars, wrist chains and wallet chains. I wanna swear at small children, swallow raw eggs, grind my teeth in public and spit. I'm going to be hard assed, hard to get around, hard hearted in my ink and sterling disguise, mean looking in ripped jeans, buffed up, shit stuffed, and puffed with attitude. I want all y'all to walk away just shaking your head saying,
9: Man,
6: she's tough.
10: I warned him about those men. I never raised him to be king just to be what was needed, the answer to the innkeeper. Perhaps it could have been different, but that night I was just too broken. My legs were sweltering sacks of veins. My bones cracked with the new kicking weight and that punishing ride through the mountains. They never wrote about the open sores on my buttocks, my screaming vagina, and the fear. I stank of it. I had seen the collapse of birthing women the long crushing of muscles, the shriek of ripping skin, the invisible hammering out of a child, and, of course, the death. Yes, I had seen this. The men and their fearful feet gathering in other rooms like pigeons, their wives unseen and splitting air with horror and with miracles, shuddered away, they could hear the blotted screams, but they didn't witness the blood fury in the eyes of a woman whose body seems determined to kill her. They didn't see her brain whipping at logic as it fell into war with sin. You know, they just waited for the babies to come. Or not. They hid from the wrath of birth. So it was easy for that pig faced innkeeper to turn his back on my stricken cheeks, my trivial lips, and my Joseph to see my Joseph beg. My poor, confused Joseph, trying so hard not to panic, see I had told him those stories back when we were sure we'd have hot water and that night he could taste the losing of me. That innkeeper jerked his careless finger under Joseph's honest nose, don't let that book tell you otherwise, there was no gracious offer of a stable, only a slam dusty door as he munched back to his dinner and his desperate wife. Joseph saw the blood from the lip I was biting, dragged our tottering mule to that little dank stable, hauled me down like a sack, and hid me behind the sheep and the cows. And as I stared at their innocent udders, their shit-caked hawks, the world exploded, my mouth stuffed with straw. Even then, I knew he was only mine for those moments in the starlight. And those men came, knocking over me with their knees and swiveling eyes, kicking aside my blood, stinking of camel, myrrh, and pride. The innkeeper, swaggering about in his new celebrity, claiming his place in the birth of God's son. They wrote their stories down, but they didn't ask me anything. I was just another female etching for them to paint in. So is it any wonder I stand here, gray and stiff, my face placid, my arms stuck open like forgotten wings? They have made me a stony bird. You look to me with your weepings, your begging questions, willing me to cry one more tear so you can shout miracle and stifle me with your breath and with your fingers. But I have cried enough. And the only movement you will see is the final cracking open of my plaster lips. And whilst you wait for a zoo of blessings, I will cheat you. I will tell you the truth. I will say to you, he was my son.
4: I cannot write depressing poetry. There's many reasons why I cannot write depressing poetry. One of those reasons is milk duds. I used to eat them all the time until I thought about the name, Milk Dud. A dud is when you stick a firecracker into a frog's mouth and nothing happened. It was a waste of time. So I thought, Milk Dud, Milk Waste of Time. Milk is a waste of my time. And I never drank it. And I got brittle bones. Milk duds are one reason I cannot write depressing poetry. Another reason I cannot write depressing poetry is the lousy memory I inherited from my mother. She used to say, go clean your room, and I would get her for inspection, and she would say, your bed's not made, and I would say, I'm going to bed in three hours, why do I have to make my bed? And she would say, what if company comes over? And I would say, why would company want to see my room? And she would say, to see your new football trophy. And I would say, I don't have a football trophy. I have brittle bones. If I played football, I would be broken in two. She said, I forgot. Your brother has the football trophy. All you got is the lousy memory you inherited from me. The lousy memory I inherited from my mother is another reason I cannot write depressing poetry. The last reason is Kurt Cobain. I thought Kurt was cool. I thought Kurt was a rebel, a cool, grungy rebel. And he shot himself with a gun, and everyone was sad. And I thought if I went to shoot myself with a gun, everyone would think it was an accident, because I broke one of my brittle bones because I would forget to leave a suicide note. So because of Kurt Cobain, the lousy memory I inherited from my mother, and Milk Duds, I don't want to kill myself. And I think if you want to write depressing poetry, you have to want to kill yourself. That's my excuse. What's yours?
11: My bowels are psychic. My bladder has only the slightest inkling that paranormal experiences happen to internal organs. Always had the excuse of alcohol or stress to explain it away and convince itself that nothing really happened. But my bowels, my bowels are psychic. The only real question left is, are they passively or actively psychic? Do they detect disturbances in my daily life just before they happen and drive me to the toilet in a forlorn hope of avoiding them, or is it like sympathetic magic? Do they only move when the crap of life is already on the way? Whatever the mechanism, damn, they're sensitive. Enough to pick up special deliveries on the way up the front walk or important long-distance phone calls about to be made. But of course... I ignore them. Maybe if they could speak inside my mind with a totally fake late-night TV third-world accent. Listen to me, boy. I'm all knotted up. That means you don't go work for this man. He make you miserable. Take down a job, hon. Maybe I'd listen to my balls if they came from high in the Carpathians and did card tricks before warning me. I see shit in your life. Endless shit if you move to Fresno, California. (laughs) Or maybe if my bowels communicated like some Zen mystic, how many kinds of sorrow are there? Do not have sex with this person. (laughs) (laughs) Then maybe I'd pay attention and accept just how psychic they are. If they could speak, English that is, my bowels might be the first agency in history to confirm the existence of extraterrestrials or to communicate with whales and dolphins. Sometimes I think maybe if they stuffed clay tablets full of ancient writing up my ass, then my bowels could make clear the wisdom of long-dead civilizations. Of course, maybe they're actively psychic. Maybe my bowels cause the effects. Maybe they're pulling the strings, forcing people to come to my door unannounced the moment my pants go down. Maybe the reason my ass rarely even hits the seat before somebody asks me, Are you done in there yet? Is because my bowels are secretly forcing people to ask these questions because they just like all the attention. <laughs> Normal bowel control may not be enough. Maybe with meditation, biofeedback, and secret Tibetan Buddhist bowel exercises, I'd acquire the super-fine bowel control necessary to influence world events, bring peace to Jerusalem and Belfast, change history, open the gates to alternate dimensions. Picture... Every last coked-out scion of every old political gangster family in this country moving to my rhythms. All the Bushes, all the Kennedys, under the sway of my bowels. At least then, politics wouldn't be the same old shit. We'd get some new shit in there. Now, if you'll excuse me, the spirits are calling.
12: <laughs> okay. Here's a relationship poem. It's kind of silly, but it's kind of serious. I hope you like it. And I let you drive home drunk after that clumsy 5 a.m. kiss, and I laid in bed cursing myself for being so selfish because I knew you had a boyfriend, and we had already talked about just staying friends. But mostly, I laid in bed, cursing the wide world for its series of unflinching machinations that had brought me to this moment of nighttime, my arms not around you, my mouth as hungry as it's ever been for anything or anyone, my thirst like a slap, as I thought again of my drunken lunge toward every bit of you. But that was a different night than the one I really want to talk about. This other one was a Friday night and your boyfriend was out of town and we were both nervous but we drank wine anyway or maybe because of it and your dogs followed us out into the backyard where I built a fire. And I felt like this was some sort of mystical, romantical test and I built it just the way my friend Shane had taught me, a one match fire. And it actually lit with just one match and I was quite relieved. And never mind about the possible metaphors here, too obvious, too cheesy. But, I was proud of my little fire, and you rolled up a wheelbarrow full of more wood and there was plenty of room in the pit left for more fire and I thought, what if I'm being too timid? What if she's used to her boyfriend building a really big fire? And this little fire leaves her totally unimpressed and in fact, a little disappointed. So all of a sudden, I am trapped in my head in a fire-making competition with your boyfriend, who isn't even there, but still stands between us like a wall. And so I begin snapping cedar branches from a nearby woodpile and tossing them and the boards and the logs from the pit to the wheelbarrow into the pit, drinking more wine, trying to seem casual about everything. But... I am wondering about my place in the fire-making competition. And I am using all my pyrotechnique to make a huge, hot, yet contained, blaze. And the thing is so big, the dogs withdraw. And you get nervous, not about us this time, but about the house possibly igniting. And you hop over a smoldering hay bale to rescue an old wooden owl that has burst into flames. And I... Stand and stoke and stir the fire with a seven-foot iron rod I found nearby. True story. (laughs) Feeling like the king of campfires. And I am tempted to question your impression of my fantastic fire skills with pet name-laced questions like, Hot enough for you, monkey lips. How about that fire, grasshopper wings? What do you think of my incredibly mind-blowing and obviously far, far superior to your boyfriend's fire-building and tending skills now? Chinchilla hips. But instead, we simply sit and drink more wine and share stories of our childhoods. You tell of the secret swamp and the sinking mattress raft. I tell of the Thanksgiving where my gang of cousins beat another gang of cousins with sticks. (laughs) And the fire growls and crackles and the fire pops and chortles and we laugh and drink more wine and share those stories. And we are both still nervous.
7: Sometimes the feeling in my left hand pours through my nails, pulling on the floor for my inner child to stomp. Splashing joy shouts, hands whirling in dervish wonder. Sometimes it burns when I pee. Sometimes, I remember how you once pleaded, I need something to look forward to, and I wonder why it is that I'm not permitted to make the same request of you. Sometimes I think Winona Ryder is the perfect woman. Sometimes my mom would say to my dad, boy, you're still in a fighting mood, and then she would say, why don't I take you home and beat it out of you? Sometimes my dad's friends would pay to look at the Polaroids. Sometimes I rent a four-hour porno, crank the television volume to full, toss some Ted Nugent into the CD player, crank that, then leave the apartment. (laughs) Sometimes I make lists of all the wrongs I've levied against you. Sometimes you mention you wouldn't know where to begin, and so you skip that part. Sometimes Hillary Rodden Clinton appears in my dreams, commands me to take off all my clothes, then train monkeys, take turns pouring vodka and aspirins down my throat while my third grade Sunday school teacher watches, tearing my perfect attendance ribbons into teeny tiny itsy bitsy little pieces. Sometimes I recall the first time we kissed, softly once on your upper lip, softly once on your lower lip, softly with lips pressed tightly together, parting with a short gasp, eyes closed, a secret prayer. Sometimes the voices in my head fuck with me and sing show tunes while I'm having sex. <laughs> Sometimes I listen to Leonard Cohen in the dark and realize a oh, precious little I truly understand. Sometimes you say something that I've always known to be true but never heard anybody verbalize. and then before I can thank you, I forget why it was true. Then I forget why you said it. Then I forget the words. and By that time, you said something so utterly asinine that now I think you're a complete fucking idiot that I wonder why I never noticed that before. Sometimes I just feel even. Sometimes the kitty puppet talks to the Groucho Marx puppet and the kitty puppet says, today you failed to take out the trash in your allotted five-minute window of time. And the Groucho Marx puppet says, I will not ask for sex. And the kitty puppet says, today you left your clothes on the floor and failed to place them in the hamper next to your box. And the Groucho Marx puppet says, I will not ask for sex. And the kitty puppet says, in therapy today, we discussed that the Groucho Marx puppets should not base their happiness on how other puppets treat them the Groucho Marx puppet said, I don't know when I'm going to be home tonight. Sometimes I cup our son's face in my hands and I forget everything that's come between us. Sometimes I watch you sleeping late at night and I remember the first house you purchased and the look on your face the day we had to leave it behind. Sometimes I recognize that look, that other person you're going to go away to become for a while, a night, a week, maybe months. So I wait attempt sleep right into the night and try to remember who the hell i'm supposed to be sometimes
13: I stood fresh off the boat All pierced and pigeonholed Manhattan skyline in my eyes Kinda like that song I wrote About going back and how It should come as no surprise for you This would never do I got memories of all the things I knew we'd never do Uncertainties harbored inside my mind Kind of like that Bobby D All tangled up in blue, you know I was Tangled up in you for the longest time But for me This would never do I've moved on That don't mean I don't have a scar The size Of Texas inside of me From you I guess That's what we get Sensation And no pain, yeah I guess I guess that's What comes with scar tissue But for me Surrounds me like A crisp white linen sheet Left to dry In a warm July sun How am I Supposed to tell you this When for all those Years we thought that We would be the Only, only Ones I know this song will never, 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 never never do. I know this song will never, 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 never do. There I stood fresh off the boat, all pierced and pigeonholed. Manhattan skyline in my eyes, kind of like that song I wrote about going back. I know that Midwestern sky will come as no surprise, but right now I've got this Manhattan skyline.